Alma read the letter, carefully translating the Hawaiian words into English. The matter that we wish to write you about, it read, is concerning our prophet living here, Walter M. Gibson. Is it true that he is our leader? Hello and welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm Ben Godfrey. In today's episode, we are delighted to have with us Clint Christensen, who is a global acquisition specialist with the Church History Department, and he specializes specifically in Asia and the Pacific. Welcome, Clint. Glad to be here. Clint is also the author of two books, Stories of the Temple in Laie, Hawaii, and a co-author of The Laie Hawaii Temple, A Century of Aloha, with Eric Marlowe as his co-author. We're delighted to have you here today, Clint, because we're going to be talking a little bit about Hawaii and Laie and the saints in the Hawaiian Islands. But first, in the episode, we're introduced to TBH Stenhouse, and he actually meets with President Abraham Lincoln. Can you tell us, Clint, a little more about why he's meeting with Lincoln and what is their meeting like? Well, as we uh, begin this chapter, it's the middle of the Civil War. And as the country is worried about North versus South, the members of the church are dealing with a new law that's been passed, the Morrill Act, which tried to squash polygamy. And so Stenhouse meets with Lincoln to discuss uh, this issue of uh, plural marriage, which also limited the church to be able to only own $50,000 worth of property. And so as Stenhouse comes to meet with Lincoln, a very famous exchange, the Republican Party has their twin barbarisms of getting rid of slavery and polygamy. But essentially, uh, Abraham Lincoln emphasizes going back to his farmhood days in Illinois, kind of his own parable, a parable of the plow, the idea of a large log that he would go around, and he related that to Brigham Young. Essentially, we're going to leave the Latter-day Saints alone while he's working on the Civil War issue. It's kind of a fascinating story. I mean, anytime you can bring Abraham Lincoln into a story, that's a, that's a pretty <laughs> yeah. cool thing as far as American history goes. Abraham Lincoln had appointed this man, Stephen Harding, to be the governor of Utah, and he'd fallen out of favor with the Saints. They hadn't been getting along really well. I found it fascinating that he was from Palmyra. Of all places, he was from Palmyra, New York. What do we know about his interactions? Because he knew the Smiths, right? He knew Joseph Smith's family. That's correct. Yeah, Harding was uh, born in Palmyra in 1808, so he's just three years younger than the prophet Joseph. Uh, when he was 12, his family moved to Indiana, but he has a memory of seeing Joseph Smith Jr. fishing when they were boys. And then Stephen Harding came back uh, as an attorney to visit his hometown in 1829. And of course, what we know from the history of the church is the publication of the Book of Mormon was proceeding. And so he has a clear memory of coming into E.B. Grandin's uh, press, meeting Joseph Smith Sr., Joseph Smith Jr. Uh, his cousin, uh, Mr. Tucker, was actually working for Grandin, and Stephen Harding got to see the very first pages come off the press of the Book of Mormon. He describes the scene where the first page is taken and it's handed to each person in the room. Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, uh, Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith Sr., and then uh, Mr. Tucker took one of these uncut sheets and gave it as a souvenir to Stephen Harding. 
That is just incredible. Unbelievable. (laughs) It just seems so bizarre that he ends up being appointed later as uh, territorial governor for Utah and has that connection with the Smiths, albeit not a really great connection because he's not super friendly to the saints and isn't their best advocate. But we do learn in the chapter, it's not too long after the meeting, that Lincoln appoints a different governor and it's one that works out better. Well, switching gears a little, Clint, let's move to Hawaii, which is your area of expertise and why we're so excited to have you with us. In this chapter, Alma Smith, our listeners will remember, who is the son of Amanda Barnes Smith. He's the son who had his hip miraculously healed after Hans Mill. He'd been a missionary in Hawaii, and he gets a very strange letter. Tell us about this letter and what Alma's concerns were. So at the time that Brigham Young announced that the Utah war was beginning, the federal troops were coming to Utah, he pulls back missionaries. And that left a vacuum in Hawaii as uh, missionaries left, the locals were, were put in charge, and a new convert named Walter Murray Gibson had joined the church in 1860. He was a great adventurer. He'd actually been a ship captain briefly, gone to Indonesia, uh, was quite the world traveler, and had come to Utah and impressed Brigham Young and was commissioned to go start the church in Asia. And on his way to his adventurous places in Asia, uh, he stops in Hawaii and falls in love with Hawaii. And he begins to take over the church, says that he's the president of the church. Uh, He comes to the area of uh, Lanai, which is an island off of Maui, and begins to appoint other leaders, beginning the practice of priestcraft, um, asking uh, people for money. I mean, this just is such a weird thing. It just seems so bizarre. But remind us, what are the saints doing in Lanai? They're gathering there. This is kind of their local gathering spot. And how are they acquiring property? And what does Walter Gibson, what does he get into there with the local members who've kind of been left behind when the missionaries had to pull out? So Lanai had been appointed as a gathering place. Uh, You know, the saints believed in gathering. But the challenge there is uh, Walter Murray Gibson comes and the church doesn't have any money. Uh, He actually takes some of his own money that he obtained in speaking through Honolulu about his adventures in Indonesia and began trying to get land. There was a local chief who had offered thousands of acres of land to the saints for a five-year lease. That was the temporary idea of we're going to try to build the church in Lanai. So you can see how this would be so confusing to the members there. You know, the missionaries leave. They're left with Walter Gibson, who was called as a missionary. And so he did at one point have the authority to preach the gospel. And so I just imagine their confusion in, you know, trying to follow his directions. And then the brethren get this letter from the saints in Hawaii. And let's just listen to it. It's highly alarming. So we'll listen to this clip from the book and then talk about what happens next. Alma read the letter, carefully translating the Hawaiian words into English. The matter that we wish to write you about, it read, is concerning our prophet living here, Walter M. Gibson. Is it true that he is our leader? It tells us in the book, Alma continues to read this over and over again, the word prophet. What does this mean? And what's the aftermath? What happens? Well, Brigham Young acts very decisively. 
he realizes there's a potential apostasy going on in Hawaii. So he dispatches two members of the 12, Ezra T. Benson and Lorenzo Snow, and then some of the pioneer early missionaries, including Alma Smith, William Clough, and Joseph F. Smith, which would play a very important role in the future of the church in Hawaii. And so they essentially get to California, get on a boat and go to Maui, and then on their way to the island of Lanai to confront Brother Gibson. You told us a story before we started recording today, and I hope you can share it with our listeners. In the book, we learn that Lorenzo Snow and others, Alma Smith, their boat capsizes, and Lorenzo drowns. And Alma Smith, you know, he's rolling Lorenzo on this barrel, and he's inspired. He receives revelation to give mouth-to-mouth before people knew what Mm -hmm. mouth-to-mouth was. So he gives him mouth-to-mouth and uh, resuscitation, that is, and he comes back, and he's saved— But there's sort of a prequel to this miraculous saving of Lorenzo Snow and the others whose boat capsized. Can you tell us about what happened on that ship as they came into port? As they're ready to get off the boat, you know, the brethren are anticipating getting on with their job. And there's this interaction where Ezra T. Benson and Lorenzo Snow are chiding Joseph F. Smith for not wanting to get with them to get on the boat. Joseph F. Smith looks at the water, having been a missionary there, and realizes that there's problems with the waves and it's not safe. Uh, You know, you've got the problems with the reefs and and getting through the reefs to the safety of the shore. And in this uh, interaction with Lorenzo Snow, Joseph F. Smith says, if you by the authority of the priesthood of God, which you hold, tell me to get into the boat and attempt to land, I will do so. But unless you command me in the authority of the priesthood, I will not do so because it is not safe to attempt to land. So here you see the courage of Joseph F. Smith, Hiram's son, to stand up to two members of the 12 when he feels like from the spirit there's something that's wrong. And he stands his ground and Lorenzo Snow doesn't use the spirit of compulsion but allows Joseph F. Smith to stay on board. And later we hear from Lorenzo Snow that when that interaction took place, it was revealed to Lorenzo Snow that Joseph F. Smith would someday become the president of the church. So you see this character of Joseph F. Smith shining through. Wow, that's an amazing insight that we didn't learn about in the book, and I'm so glad you could share it with us and with our listeners. These two apostles and their companions make their way to visit Walter Murray Gibson, and let's just listen to a clip here from the book that kind of describes the scene. After breakfast, Walter took the men to his Sabbath meeting with the Hawaiian saints. An elaborately dressed supreme bishop rang a bell to assemble the congregation together. As the saints filed in, 15 or 20 young men wearing wreaths of flowers and green leaves sat down on a bench at the head of the meeting house. 17 boys and 17 girls, each dressed in a uniform, then took seats near a table where the bishop sat with men Walter had set apart as apostles. So this scene where we see what Walter's created at this Sunday service, it actually kind of reminded me about in the Book of Mormon when Alma and Amulek go visit the Zoramites, and they're shocked by what's happened and the liberties that people have taken, you know, in worshiping and things like that. But there were some very prominent members of the church who were following Walter. Can you tell us about more about that and how the saints were reacting? Well, Jonathan Napala is one of the more famous Hawaiian Latter-day Saints who helped George Q. Cannon in the translation of the Book of Mormon. But I think many of the Hawaiian members were just amazed at the charisma of Walter Murray Gibson. And so they were told to gather and Walter Murray Gibson comes in and he's great ideas on how to build up Lanai. And, and so they began to follow him. And so what do the leaders that have come from Salt Lake, what do they do? 
Well, first they kind of listen. They find out what's going on with Walter Murray Gibson, gather information. And then in a later meeting with the brethren, Walter Murray Gibson talks about how he's this great father to the Hawaiian people. And then Joseph F. Smith speaks to the, the members in Hawaiian and reminds them of what a true missionary of the restored gospel is like that George Q. Cannon and himself, you know, lived with the people, ate the food of the people. They went without purse or script. They were humble. They were not like Walter Murray Gibson, and they did not sell offices, and they taught the true gospel. And even though initially the Lanai members sided with Walter Murray Gibson, after the brethren um, excommunicated him, after that uh, visit, the saints began to kind of leave Lanai. It became less populated, and uh, we set the stage for later another gathering place. Another part of the chapter here I thought was interesting was this little scene where Walter has taken this hollowed out boulder and he's put a Book of Mormon in there and some documents and it's kind of like made it into an idol almost, that it's this cornerstone of the temple. Is he borrowing from their local traditions to kind of create this pseudo-religion, or why would he do that? Yeah, he's definitely playing into the uh, Hawaiians' superstition and their earlier theological beliefs before Christianity of, uh, you know, certain things that are taboo that you don't touch, and uh, played that in with our theology. And then, of course, two of the missionaries just go through almost like a little rampage and uh, take it apart and show that they're not going to be struck by God for touching this sanctified place. Joseph F. Smith, who, as you mentioned earlier, is very strong um, and has spoken to the saints in Hawaiian, when there's not sort of an immediate return, he's depressed. It's kind of almost uncharacteristic for him at this point. He writes a letter to Brigham Young and says, well, among other things, he says, we cannot even see that the gospel had benefited them one iota because not one of them has lived it. And so he's just like, I'm ready to give up. Thankfully, before that return letter from Brigham Young comes saying, you know, use your best judgment, uh, things have started to turn around. Where do the saints go next and what do the missionaries do? Well, I think we need to remember that just like with the children of Israel in Moses' day, whenever we start the church in a country, you have all of these things that the first generation has to work through and, and get out of their system. And that's, I think, the frustration that Joseph S. Smith is seeing is, you know, we've been here 10 years and the progress is slow. But in the October 1864 conference that Joseph F. Smith holds on Oahu, he essentially asks for a reformation, just like what had been going on in the 1850s, asks the leading families to be rebaptized and to rekindle that fire. And, you know, that's the moment where you look at a man like Jonathan Napella, who was a strong convert, who had that experience with the Book of Mormon translation, and in 1869 travels to Salt Lake. He receives his endowment in the endowment house, the first Hawaiian to get the temple blessings. And so he's kind of that microcosm of great things are going to come in years ahead in Hawaii. And fortunately, Joseph S. Smith didn't give up. When you go into the Hawaii temple today, there's two portraits of the brethren. One is of George Q. Cannon, one of Joseph F. Smith. And that's fitting because I think Brigham Young would have closed the mission for a while if it weren't for men like Joseph F. Smith that said, no, we're going to keep plowing the ground a little longer. And it is fitting because you think of Joseph F. Smith's connection with Hawaii and and so you can understand how deeply he feels and how disappointed he is and just, you know, that he wants to give up. But then at the same time, that connection inspires hope in him too. And he is inspired to call more local leaders and to start building up the church again there. And let's listen to 
another clip from the book just kind of describing this situation. Joseph announced the change in October and called Hawaiians to leadership positions at a mission-wide conference in Honolulu. After he spoke, Kaloa, a Hawaiian elder, testified of his determination to serve in the church. I was a boy when these brethren first came to the islands, he said. I am now a man. Let us no longer be children, but men in faith and good works. What a beautiful quote. I mean, how many times in all of our lives have we said, okay, it's time to grow up. We have to be the men and women of faith now. It's our turn. And I love that quote from Kaloa saying, it's time to grow up. We've got to be men of, and, and I would add women of faith. Clint, can you tell us, just because this is such a unique situation in church history, what happened to Walter Murray Gibson? After all this was over, did he continue on in Hawaii? What happened to him? So uh, within 10 years, Walter Murray Gibson owned essentially all of Hanai, and he began to get into politics. Uh, he moves over to Oahu and his daughter Tallulah and her husband uh, continue his shepherding business, which is where he made some of his money. And he enters in politics. By 1882, he's become the prime minister and minister of foreign affairs to King Kalakaua, the last king of Hawaii. And he was very interested in the welfare of the Hawaiian people. That was very sincere about uh, Walter Murray Gibson. He believed in the rights of the Hawaiians. He was also influential in getting more money to the taking care of the lepers that lived in Kalapapa, uh, very worried about the disease. And the fact that since the discovery of the Hawaiians uh, by the British in 1778, the population had gotten down to 60,000 at this time. So he, he also was worried about how do we bring people into Hawaii to uh, kind of improve and save the race, essentially, from his perspective. So he, he was a prime minister until 1887, when events led to uh, what would become the businessman taking over Hawaii and Hawaii going to the United States as a territory. So tell us about what led the church to move from Lanai to now Laie. They began to look for another place to meet. And I think because of Walter Murray Gibson financially trying to take all the assets of the church, Brigham Young authorized that another place would be chosen and the church would pay for it. And so in the process of going and looking at places in the island of Kauai and Oahu, there was a 6,000-acre site that was in Laie that uh, we have eventually purchased. There's an amazing story that ends the chapter well, where William Clough has a, a day vision where he actually has a conversation with Brigham Young where he's looking out and Brigham Young looks at this beautiful area and says this is to be the headquarters of the mission. What I would like to know is when William Clough returned did he have a conversation with Brigham Young about that yeah. vision? <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, from that day forward, Laie becomes the gathering place. It's also anciently known as a place of refuge. In Hawaii, there were places just like in the, the Old Testament where if a person had committed a serious crime, they could go to the city of refuge and be safe. And uh, Laie was one of those ancient places of refuge. So uh, there's the analogy that people make of, of Laie being this uh, city of refuge. And of course, the temple would come, uh, which would be a refuge from the storm, but not a refuge from wickedness, a refuge of righteousness. And how many people eventually gathered to Laie and how many people are there today? What is the church's ownership of land like? And what's been the legacy of the purchasing of this 6,000-acre property, you know, back at this time? 
Well, at the time in the 1860s, membership was roughly 3,000. Um, it was the size of a small stake, but there was a lot of inactivity. But with the purchase of Laillet by 1915, there's a temple that's announced and dedicated in 1919. Because of that decision to put a temple there, we eventually get the Church College of Hawaii, which is today BYU-Hawaii. There's tens of thousands of members of the church in Hawaii. When I last kept track, there was about 16 stakes on the islands of Hawaii. And so it really became uh, not only the place for the Hawaiian saints to gather. When the temple was dedicated, it was actually several talks were given in Hawaiian. It was a temple for the Hawaiian people. But as you know, this problem that Walter Murray Gibson struggled so much about with being prime minister of what do we do so that the Hawaiians don't disappear. The Hawaii temple and Laie being a center stake of Zion actually helped solve that issue. Uh, there were about 500 members in Laie when the temple was dedicated. In the 1920s, a fourth of them were Samoans, Samoans that came because of the gathering place. And as you see today, there's you know the Japanese and the Chinese that came and other Polynesians that have made Hawaii such an interesting test for the church. Can you build a Zion community with so many different nations? It is remarkable to me that if you put the chronology together of when temples were built and dedicated, the fifth temple after the saints arrived in, in Utah, and we learn about this in this volume of Saints Volume 2, we have St. George, Manti, Logan, and Salt Lake. In Volume 1, we had Kirtland and Nauvoo, and then we have Hawaii. It's not England. It's not Scandinavia. It's incredible. It really is, it's incredible to me that this place has become such a gathering point for the members of the Isles of the Sea. In addition to the Hawaiian temple being the fifth temple, like you said, since the saints arrived in Utah, it's just incredible to me to realize the significance that Hawaii played in the early church. The second translation of the Book of Mormon into another language was Hawaiian. So it's just incredible to remember. And Clint, we're glad to have you and your expertise. So you can you tell us a little bit more about this legacy and the Le'ie Temple. Yeah, you, you know, as we end the chapter, Joseph F. Smith is encouraging the saints for this Reformation. And as we'll see in the later Saints, Volume 2 and Volume 3, you know, he does become the prophet. And one of the final things he gets to do as the prophet is return to Hawaii and see in 1915 how strong the church has become, how mature these uh, men and women have become, and be able to announce that a temple uh, will come to Hawaii. Now, of course, he doesn't live to see it dedicated, but I think that's one of the crowning uh, moments of Joseph F. Smith's life is to see all that he had worked for in Hawaii come to fruition. And it's amazing that it's the fifth temple. After reading Volume 2 of Saints, I've talked to a number of different friends and co-workers who have connections to Hawaii. And as I've mentioned that, hey, we, we talk about Hawaii in Saints Volume 2. It's amazing to me. They all will ask me, you know, are you telling the story about George Q. Cannon? Are you telling the story about Joseph F. Smith? Did you talk about Lanai? Did you talk about Walter Gibson? They are so excited. These Hawaiian saints love the history of their place in Hawaii. And I'm just thrilled that as members of the church, as a worldwide church now, we can sort of be part of that and we can learn about these wonderful members and their pioneer experiences in Hawaii. Clint, what's Lanai like today? I had the opportunity in September 2018 to visit uh, Lanai and speak at the branch there. There's only one branch on the island of Lanai. There's only a few thousand people on this island. And what Walter Murray Gibson set 
uh, in order of buying the property, uh, made that a private island. And uh, his daughter Tallulah and her husband Frederick Hazel inherited the land. Uh, today it is still privately owned. For 70 years in the 20th century, it was the Pineapple Empire by uh, Dole Company. And then later it's gone into other private hands. But it is just a single branch. And while I was there, I, I talked kind of a what if. You know, what if Walter Murray Gibson and others had been faithful? Would the temple have come here? I encouraged the members to hold on to their temple covenants and be active. Ironically, one of the members uh, of the 50 people that came to the branch fireside was a descendant of Walter Murray Gibson. Wow. Oh, wow. And so I think we always have to be careful as we tell church history stories about the apostate and the foibles of people because someday one of their descendants is going to come back into the church. I find that incredibly encouraging, honestly, to know that despite all of these issues that one of Walter Murray Gibson's descendants is there attending church in Lanai. What an incredible way to end our discussion with you, Clint Christensen. We're so glad that you could be with us. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us for this episode of The Saints Podcast. And let us know what you have thought about these episodes and any feedback or questions that you have. You can email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. And of course, you can follow along at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org as we go through the chapters in Saints. And also you can access additional topics if there's anything that you're interested in learning more about. And there is, in fact, a topic on Hawaii. And if you check the bibliography in the footnotes, you'll see a variety of additional resources you can learn about the wonderful pioneering history of the saints in Hawaii. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening.